Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Frederick Turner, who is a poet, literary critic, philosopher, and environmental theorist who has written several science fiction epic poems. Fred, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, I, in fact, I want to find out more about your organization. It sounds like just the kind of thing I want to uh, contribute to. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we <laughs> are happy to get into that. First, let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're trying to solve. Well, um, I was raised in uh, Central Africa by my parents, Victor and Edie Turner, who are sort of fairly well-known anthropologists. And um, uh, so, uh, and moved as an anthropology brat, moved around quite a bit. And so I always felt that I was a sort of um, global uh, person. And um, in fact, one of my one of my most interesting experiences was coming back to England after having been in Africa for three years and feeling somewhat suspicious of all those weird white people. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, we, we'd lived in, a, in an African village and, um, uh, and uh, I learned the language and uh, got to know the kids and the rituals and that sort of thing. Um, so... And while I was out there, I had a you know the the kind of classic uh, sort of epiphanic experience, um, uh, sitting in the, my dad's truck driving through um, the uh, uh, on the dirt roads of of, of central Zambia, um, and um, uh, we drove through a, a grove of. Um, of uh, plum, uh, wild plum trees. The plum is called the mfungu. And um, uh, I suddenly had this, I, I was about 11, I suppose, and I had this sort of, sort of uh, astonished vision of the, uh, 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 of the world around me. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't sort of hyper-real hyper, hyper or anything like that. It was absolutely real. And what amazed me was that all the leaves were perfectly made, that all the, you know, the fruits were perfectly made, that, yeah. you know, the sky was perfectly made, everything, everything. And I, I knew enough by then about science that everything was pretty perfectly made all the way down to the molecules and the, uh, and the atoms and so on. And I was simply astonished. I mean, it was a sense of, of uh, of of amazement, um, and you could call that a, a religious experience. You know, uh, how did it all get here? What, you know, what, uh, who, you know, if you wanted to build a leaf, you know, a, a real leaf, you'd right. have to spend the gross natural product for a couple of a couple of years. You know, yep. I mean, um, uh, it, it, so. Um, and then what immediately followed on the heels of that was that there was something in here, in my, my mind, in my brain, in this, this piece of meat and bone that was experiencing it, that, that, that was actually, that was, it was an I that was experiencing it. Now, obviously, both of those, both of those experiences are experiences of absolutely ordinary things. Um, but it struck, they struck me as absolutely extraordinary. And the whole of the rest of my life, I've been trying to, in one way or another, explain the extraordinariness of it. And being a poet um, is, you know, was my way of doing it. And uh, it also pushed me into immense curiosity about all of nature. And I've always been interested in most of the bran major branches of science. 
And so, so it was when you were 11 years old, that's when you decided you wanted to terraform Mars? Um, <laughs> uh, the terraforming of Mars sort of grew originally out of that. It was, um, uh, it, I suppose I, I, I was, you know, my thought at that time was, you know, what would it take to build one of these? What would it take to build that place in Africa with the, fr with the fruit trees? Supposing you had to build it from the ground up. And so that was my first introduction to ideas about evolution and so on. And, uh, but it was also, in a sense, a precursor to the idea of, uh, of well, let's see what you'd have to do with a planet that, 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 that didn't have the, the fruit trees. Um, how, would you, how would you build one? And so that was when I started thinking about terraforming. Oh. But that was many, many years later. <laughs> so you straddle this really interesting line between science and aesthetics. And I have several questions about what that's like for you and, and kind of sure. how you ended up there. So, but first, I wanted to ask, why do you think so few people do this? It's not impossible to find serious researchers in the hard sciences who like poetry or serious researchers in the humanities with a good knowledge of thermodynamics, but it's very rare. Do you have any thoughts as to how this gap opened up? Um, well, clearly, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the, the C.P. Snow two cultures, and that, that has been around for a long time. I think it goes back, uh, in some ways, at least academically, it goes back to the, um, uh, to the German, um, the origins of the German university, um, uh, at least of the modern German university, where, um, uh, and it went back to a, uh, which goes back to a philosophical problem. And the philo philosophical problem is if the universe is a piece of absolutely deterministic clockwork, if it's a, if it is a, lap, if it could, could, could be perfectly predicted by a Laplace calculator, which would have all the vectors and masses and, and, and so on of all the particles in the universe. Um, if that's the case, then the whole uh, realm of the uh, humanities, which are all based upon freedom and open futures and um, uh, alternatives uh, and so on, uh, would, be, uh, would be an illusion. And um, so, you know, Kant writes uh, his, uh, he, Kant is trying to deal with that problem, uh, particularly when it comes to, to ethics. Um, and, uh, but, but the only way to, to, to deal with it at first seemed to be to separate the Geisterswissenschaft, the, the knowledge or wisdom about the mind mm -hmm. from Naturwissenschaft, knowledge, wisdom, science, uh, of nature. And, um, I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, it was a mistake because they didn't at that time realize that the, that, the whole question of causality is extremely uh, complicated. And since then, we've come to talk about nonlinear dynamical systems and, uh, and radical unpredictability um, in many, many scientific fields. And that the world does seem to be sort of making itself up as it goes along, rather than filling out a foregone conclusion. Um, and um, uh, that the, 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 the uh, choice um, uh, is, is part of nature, um, that time is branchy, that, that at, a given, at a given time, uh, if you look back over time, it looks like a, a line of events. But when you look forward, in fact, there is, there's a whole spray of possible um, outcomes that will that can come out of the uh, out of the present moment, and um, uh, the 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 world is uh, the the you know the uh, time itself is a dyma dynamical creative process, and it even generates itself as I found out later through reading the work of J T Fraser uh, that time itself evolves uh, at the beginning of the universe in the Big Bang. 
you so it would be it would be nonsense to talk about concepts like past present and future or even earlier or earlier and later or before and after um those sorts of concepts would make no sense you had to have really you know the emergence of energy and the emergence of matter and the emergence of life for some of those uh, essential elements of time to evolve uh, and that again uh, uh, it, it, you know, w w w it seems to me to uh, indicate the need for a profound change in our educational system to bring Naturwissenschaft and Geisteswissenschaft back together again. And that's been a large part of my own work as, a, as an academic so and as a poet. Yeah, so some of the work that I've done in the past, um, I... I focus on a lot of what I refer to as unanswerable questions. Yeah. Um, now, if, if I was going to design the universe, I would mm -hmm. want everything to work right every time. Uh, and yet we seem to have an exception to every rule. And uh, I keep asking, coming back to this question of why do we have an exception to every rule? Um, it makes life much more interesting, but nothing works quite as we originally had it, had planned. Yes, time is real. <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe this is a problem, not, it's not just an epistemological problem, it's not just a problem with our knowledge. Uh, I think it's a problem that the universe is, at, is, is itself trying to deal with, uh, that um, uh, 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 crises and paradoxes arise um, uh, all the time it, it, it as the thresholds new kinds of thresholds are crossed um uh, and if you look at if one looks at just the the evolution of the four forces of physics one can see that that that, that if you get uh, as certain increases of magnitude in certain directions um uh, you know supergravity cannot um hold together it has to bifurcate and and the the the, uh, the 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 eventually uh, four forces, the electromagnetism, the weak and strong um, nuclear fo forces, have to emerge out of that that, that original sort of primary superforce. Super uh, so the evolutionary process big, begins at the Big Bang. Um, uh, and it's it, it, so one of the things I've been interested in is the nature of, of, of what, what I would call thresholdiness. That is, um, the and this is fundamental to time. That is, if if any anything accumulates or keeps on going for long enough in an iterative kind of way, um, it's going to run up against. Um, uh, uh, you know, fundamental problems. It's going to have to bifurcate and it's going to enter into chaotic regimes which then um, uh, involve uh, strange attractors and, and, and new uh, kinds of self-organizing systems come into, into, into existence. Um, and I, so, in other words, that fundamental imperfection is precisely the nature of time. And uh, if one wanted to be theological about it, one could say that that is the divine principle. It's a principle of imperfection. Well, I, I don't know if I want to be theological about it, but I might be <laughs> teleological about it. So you said, you said that, yeah, that that was perfect but setup. Teleology there. implies a, a goal that you're going towards. Well, that's that what I was going to ask you. So it's a, a teleogenic process. It's a process that creates te teleology. Okay, well, let's get into that then, because the, the way you yeah. phrased it earlier in response to one of Thomas's questions was that there's a sense in which the universe is trying to grapple with certain deep metaphysical issues, or, or I guess epistemological doesn't really apply here, but I, I think you see what I'm pointing at. So yeah. would, would you say that the universe is evolving towards a goal? Uh, what are these teleogenic processes that are at play, uh, which you've elucidated in your work? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, as I said, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's the, the, that it's evolving towards a goal. I mean, I like Théodore de Chardin, and that, yeah. that would be a sort of uh, a, a Christian religious way of 
of looking at the process. But it seems to me that the um, that it, it's it's a teleogenic process, and and what I mean by that is that it um, it doesn't uh, uh, although how can I put it locally and temporarily it is goal oriented i mean even in the simple sense that you know uh, a a piece of massive matter will tend to gravitate towards another piece of matter you know sure. dante says the force that moves the sun and the other stars right. but um and of course you know any living organism has all kinds of priorities and um uh, 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 drives and uh, and uh, tropisms and so on. Um, uh, d- desire goes all the way down, I think, uh, as far as living organisms is concerned. Um, uh, so, uh, but in the larger sense, um, uh, the universe doesn't just, as it were, attempt to fulfill its tropisms or its desires, it tends to generate new kinds of tropisms and desires at higher levels of, of organization. Um, uh, 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 you know, more and more self-reflexive systems made up of, um, of, of, ref- of lesser um, reflexive systems all the way down so to speak. So, um, so Trent, Trent and I live in uh, Colorado, and it's, we're not too far from the National Institute of Standards. Yes. And, and they, um, they're the place where they, the keeper of all the standards. Now, yeah. we, we've had some discussions in the past about if you go to another planet, very few of these standards apply on another planet. And when you go to another planet, the uh, the gravity is different there, so yes. all the the weights and most of the measurements will will change. Um, the uh, uh, just the atmosphere is different. The day night cycles are different. Um, the predators are different. Just everything there um, is different, and um, and and so I don't know personally. I've kind of come to the conclusion that there's no no other human-like creatures on other planets just because there's all of the different variables that'll be there. There might yeah. be other life forms, but they won't be human-like. And so uh, Hollywood's fascination with putting uh, extra wrinkles on somebody's forehead yeah, right. and an alien <laughs> is, is, is far from the truth. Right. Um, right. And, and so this... Uh, uh, so we're, we're, we're tend to view everything through an earthly lens yes. as, as we look at the universe around us. Uh, can, can you talk to that a little bit? Well, it does seem to me that there is, uh, you know, again, a kind of hierarchy of, um, uh, of uh, constants ranging from the very local to the very, uh, to the universal. Obviously, uh, on another planet, pi is still going to be pi. Uh, phi is still going to be phi. Uh, um, the speed of light, it, you know, is, is, is e is probably still going to be e. Um, uh, you know, in terms of candle candle power, or you know, the way in which things diminish by button uh, with distance optically, that's going to be constant. Um, okay. uh, and then there are going to be things that are 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 very likely. That is, it's. I would think it's probably good, probably pretty unlikely that there would be um, life uh, on another planet that wasn't um, generally ecological and evolutionary. That didn't have a kind some kind of balance between commensality and competition uh, uh, if you go you know even on other planets if you're going to have if there's any kind of economic system it's probably going to be it's probably going to involve some some something like um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, markets 
Um, uh, okay. uh, at the same time, obviously, they're going to be absolutely radical differences. Uh, uh, my, uh, I have an unpublished novel at the moment that I'm sort of trying to sell, which is about the, the, um, the exploration of Europa. Uh, and Europa has a an ocean that is, I think, twice as, uh, uh, two or three times uh, in the volume of all the Earth's oceans put together. And um, it's been around for as long as the Earth has been around. It has plentiful sources of energy. And um, uh, uh, under its ice, uh, it, it's, I think it's 10 or 20 kilometer thick ice, uh, cap, um, there is a warm ocean, um, and um, you know, my question would be, well, what kind of life would evolve in it? What would it be like? Um, uh, it, 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 you know, if we think of, of uh, earthly aquatic life, um, uh, octopuses and um, oh, mollusks and uh, and cetaceans uh, and so on um, are high, you know, highly intelligent. They might have made it before we did if it hadn't been for certain kinds of ac accidents. Um, uh, so uh, the the novel really is a kind of uh, a, a, a as much as I could make it a sort of from a point of view of chemistry and energy budgets and uh, and the known principles of evolution and uh, ecology and so on what would it be like if life had involved had evolved there uh, but uh, and but then of course there are things which are absolutely different there's no light there pretty much so you wouldn't uh, you know the, uh, the the major sense would of course be hearing and echolocation and, so you're you're saying that this is a how-to novel? Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and okay. uh, and then of course there would also be, uh, you know, if 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 uh, you had a civilization there, its cosmology would be very much like the medieval medieval cosmology because the edge of the world. I mean, the, anybody that tried to you know, a living creature under the under the ice that tried to burrow outwards would be as soon as it got to the surface, it would be instantaneously fried by the radiation of uh, uh, and the, and of course uh, sucked dry by 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 the you know, fried by the radiation of, of 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 Jupiter and and sucked dry by the by the by the vacuum. So no, no explorer would come back to tell the tale. But there is something else outside the edge of the universe. So it would be the edge of the the outside that would be. The whole universe. So, okay. yeah. you know, and so you know, one would, uh, you know, in other words, um, you know, one might be able to infer the kind of life that one might get on another planet, uh, at least by some kind of analogy with uh, with ours. But it would be radically different. One of the questions I like to ask is the series of thoughts or breakthroughs or experiments a person in a situation would need to undertake in order to achieve a, a broader field of vision. Like, like for example, on, on Twitter, Michael Nielsen has done this thought experiment of, of what would it have yeah. taken for a Roman mathematician to have come up with calculus mm. or something like that. So given the limitations of Roman numerals, like yeah. what's the series of thoughts that might've led a person not to invent Arabic numerals, but to have invented calculus from within that system. And then you get a feel for the constraints of a given set of symbols or, or a given way of thinking about things. And so as you were telling the story from your novel about the explorers on Europa and in the oceans, I'm yeah. wondering what, what might they have needed to do in order to have discovered that there's this universe that it has, you know, known principles that can be discovered and, and elucidated and worked within, and eventually that they could even escape the ocean. Like, would you care to riff on that? How they might have escaped from the medieval cosmology? Well, um, the I you know, one of the premises of it uh, of 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 the novel was that. It, it had achieved a very advanced civilization, but had not yet been able to uh, to break their way out. And 
it, you, you know, there are, you, we have it easy because we can actually see the universe out there at night. And we have all kinds, we made all kinds of hypotheses about it and so on. But, um, uh, and we also had some conception that if you get high enough, it gets very cold and very hard to breathe and so on, that, that there was, as it were, a, um, uh, what it, a, a ramp that we could go up to get off the planet. Uh, we could you know, <laughs> look at the pressure sure. of the air and so on and, and so on. But they would have no ramp, really, because um, uh, the, the it, I mean, I suppose they could burrow upwards to a point where they would be able to measure their radiations, so to speak, uh, the radiation, although even their radiation science would be very primitive. Uh, their bubble science would be fantastic. I mean, they would, be, <laughs> they would do fantastic things with bubbles, and collapsing bubbles and, and you know, uh, explosive uh, uh, compression and, and that kind of thing. But they wouldn't be able to... Um, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, radiation, radio would be very difficult for them. Um, but, you know, if they got really advanced, you know, working through principles, they might be able to you know, measure the kind of danger and the kind of pressure that would be up there. Um, and then they would have to, you know, design uh, heavy uh, uh, protective uh, measures, garments, or whatever, to protect them when they got out. Um, but it would be a, it, you know, it would be it would take a, a very, very kind of advanced theoretical civilization to be able to do that. They might be able to infer. The other thing is, of course, they would have huge tides there, which, of course, but but what generates a lot of the energy underneath the ice, and so they might infer from the nature of the tides. The the, uh, the 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 influences the gra gravitational influences of Jupiter and Io and and um, uh, Callisto and so on, uh, so they that the, that that might give them a theoretical grasp that there might be other bodies out there rather than that the tides were simply provided by God, you know. I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so throughout history, we've had several examples of uh, like like the Romans as an example. Uh, came up with Roman numerals, and that was yes. a, a was a system that yes. was inherently flawed, yes. and that that prevented yes. them from doing any higher yes. math. And they yes. would have yes. they would have never gotten to calculus using uh, Roman numerals yes. because every every number itself it, they didn't have a placeholder system. They yeah, they needed the, the zero. System. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and so every number was a uh, was uh, an equation, and that prevented them from doing any higher math. Yes, and, and so we we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot a lot, um, and I always like to ask the question of what systems do we have today that are the equivalent of Roman numerals that are preventing us from doing great things and. And uh, a great question. Yeah, that's a great, question. great question. <laughs> yeah. And, and so um, I always think about any any life form on some other planet would 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 uh, uh, stub their toe on similar problems like this. That yes. they, they wouldn't come up with the elegant solution right off the bat. I think one of our one of our big uh, problems is is I mean, it's, we're also able to do all kinds of wonderful things with it but is the analogy between time and space. It's the idea of the T-axis, which I think is, is a fundamental uh, a hindrance to our, to uh -huh. our thinking. Um, uh, that uh, time, time is like a line only in the limited world of, um, of, of classical dynamics. Um, uh, you know, certainly time is like a line in terms of being able to predict eclipses of the moon. Um, right. But time was not like a line uh, in the quantum world, is not like a line in the quantum world. Um, 
it's not like a line in uh, any kind of uh, nonlinear dynamical chemical system, and certainly not in life. Um, uh, or, or you know, one would have to start thinking about a, a sort of a, a curved line, a, a, a timeline that could be curved itself, or even a timeline that could have volume itself in order to be able to get some kind of, uh, to, to continue the analogy, but, but <laughs> there we go. Um, and uh, and the, again, as I say, branching timelines, uh, that would be another attempt to, to deal with it. And in fact, interestingly enough, our grammatical system for indicating tense is, uh, is really a, a wonderful uh, system for uh, analysis of branches. Of, uh, it's a kind of branched uh, time theory, if you think about it, sort of, you know, if I had done something back at that point, then five years from now, I would have been able to, I will have been able to do this, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, uh, so the, 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 the language is, in a sense, wiser than our physics. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and I think well, time time for me is the most interesting question. So one of as working as a futurist, one of the questions that um, I'm wrestling with is this idea of our relationship with the future and and where does the future come from? Um, is do we have like a staging area for each uh, piece of the future and we're experiencing it like, um, oh, uh, like a 50 frames per second. And then once we experience it, then it goes somewhere. Um, it goes from the future to the present to the past. And, mm. and then is there like a large holding tank for all of the, the spent presence that we, we have no, no use for anymore? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, in fact, um, since, um, because of the speed of light um, and therefore the speed of information, um, there's a whole lot of information, for instance, that is coming at us um, from, you know, Alpha Centauri or, you know, from the center of the right. galaxy and so on, um, that, um, uh, that hasn't happened yet as far as we're concerned. Right. In fact, everything we experience is experiencing in the past, even if it's by a few microseconds. And of course, it takes a bit of a time time for the brain to process it. Sure. Um, so it's already passed by the time we we experience it, which means, in a sense, that the whole universe is filled with um, uh, with waves and pa packets of 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 past it's absolutely chock full of them flying through us at every uh, you know in every microsecond and um uh it, so in a sense you could say that the well it's what faulkner said you know uh the past isn't even past uh the past is always already here that uh, you know we maybe ought to think about the present as a kind of an accumulation of the past or a growth of the past. Saint Augustine called it distension, a kind of distending of the of of, of the past. Um, so, so then the natural question is is how much control do we have? I mean if if these inertias, these things have already started a uh, yes. hundred million light years away, uh, pass through our atmosphere and affect yes. how we do things. Um, uh, how 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 much of the variables do we control ourselves? Well, a, a very great deal. I mean, it seems to me that you know, engineering, for instance, and art, and, and so on. You know, we do a lot of controlling, um, and um, uh, agriculture, uh, and so on. Uh, that that that. Um, uh, and then, you know, there are the ways in which we can, uh, you know, deflect and manipulate and so on the 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 uh, uh, the momentum of all of these 
past processes. But then they're also we're also perfectly capable of making up uh, out of um, just for fun, so to speak, making up things which uh, you know become. Uh, that, that that have physical causal power in the future, like, for instance, you know, the United States Constitution, or you know, or the rules of the game of chess, or, or um, uh, you know, or or, or any any uh, actual uh, any uh, uh, performative statement, uh, elocutionary act, you know, in which we, we make something true by saying it, you know, like, you know, with this ring I thee wed, you know, or, or um, uh, Congress hereby enacts this bill into law, you know, or, or um, uh, you know, if I'm, play, if I'm the dealer at poker, you know, red threes are wild, you know, I, I say, well, we're going to play seven card stud and red threes are wild, like a silly game, but, you know, as long as, for this performative community, red threes are wild. And I have said it just as God says, let there be light in the, in, in the Bible, you know, um, okay. that, that, that we, we, we can make up things which change everything. And you, for me, this is also a kind of biological reality, because in a sense, if you think of, for instance, um, limestone, which is now a very factual part of the earth and very important part of the earth, Limestone was sort of invented by um, by early forms of uh, m mollusk life. You know, I mean, uh, um, okay. <laughs> uh, that the, the world is different because of the strange inventiveness of DNA. Yeah, I often I often say that there's um, several aspects of of our universe that I can predict with high degrees of probability. Yes. Like yes. I, can, I can predict that the Earth's going to travel around the sun in roughly yeah. the same orbit 100 years from now with right. a high degree of probability. Yeah. 50 years from now, we'll still have the summer, winter, spring, and fall, and the rising yeah. and lowering of yeah. tides. And, um, and, uh, and even if, you, if I throw a handful of seeds into the ground, a certain percentage of them will spring to life. Yes. Um, and, and so most of our future is being constructed around... Uh, slow, stable, moving yes. parts, and uh, but the, then the things that are the least predictable are dealing with humans and animals and mm. and uh, like weather. Yes. Um, and so, to the degree that you can get better at predicting them, then it gives you a lot more uh, understanding of what the future holds. Yes, and predicting is the game. Uh, uh, but of course, the problem with predicting is that. Um, when you have more than one predictor, uh, you're you're into a kind of um, uh, you're immediately into um, kind of infinite regresses of second guessing. Right. Uh, right. Of course, you know we're better at it than the animals are, which is why you know we can outsmart them. But yeah. uh, but but we we can't really outsmart each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. before the time of the atomic clock, we used to say, if you had one clock, you knew what time it was. If you had two, you were never sure. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so you then, you then, you then have a, the situation of a kind of competitive, but also cooperative process of, uh, of, uh, 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 of, uh, of prediction. We're in, in a, sort of competitive, cooperative predicting contest. Uh, right, right. And, 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 and that contest isn't just one, it's not just epistemological, it's not just a matter of knowledge, it's a matter of, uh, of being itself. I mean, it, 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 uh, um, it, it doesn't just predict the future, it, it in some ways determines the future. So, so you're. Um, do you have classes going on right now? Um, well, I'm 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 emeritus now. I retired okay. last year, but I mean, I still take part in some university functions, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, I, I continue an academic life. But um, uh, uh, we, the my school, yeah, is is we we're, we're teaching. We we're doing. We have virtual classes and. 
uh, I think with considering going back uh, to a you know full uh, residential uh, system in 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 the uh, in the fall. Okay. All right. Um, now, how how do you um, anticipate the university system evolving uh, in the post-COVID world? Oh boy! Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, it, I didn't mean to stump you or anything. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's a wonderful question, and I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been thinking about it. Um, I, I'm, in general, it seems to me that what this has done is it has alerted us to the possibility of cottage industry. Um, you know, one of the big sociological problems has you know, particularly since the, the, the Industrial Revolution has been the separation between home and work. And this has in many ways been disastrous for children because um, uh, they, um, uh, they're, they're to a large extent separated from the work lives of their parents. And um, uh, uh, the whole process of apprenticeship uh, kind of has gone right down the tubes in all kinds of ways. Um, right. uh, and, uh, and out of that separation comes, for instance, urban congestion, um, uh, paving everything in order for people to get from one place to another, and so on and so on. Um, and uh, but now we're in a situation where we have such good software that we're more and more into um, being able to. Uh, well, you know, the, how can I put it? If you, if you think of, for instance, three um, D printing, um, right. uh, and. Um, uh, local programmable machine tools and that sort of thing. You do not need any more great big factories where thousands of people come in and, 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 and work on, on an assembly line. We, it may turn out that, that, that it's, you know, we're going to have a vital industrial Future that would be something like, let's say, the um, uh, the, the the wool and textile industry in England um, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so on, where people were uh, uh, doing high value or, or like say um, olive and uh, and vine um, uh, uh, growing in in the Mediterranean, where you could have very great deal of local uh, of entirely local industry. Um, uh, uh, without having to have the the without having to have a proletariat really, um, right. and uh, and it seems to me that we you know we we'd have to think about the future of education in relation to all that, and you know what would the education be for? Now, of course, we do need that you know there are you know, we we as human beings I think do need to get together in large numbers we do need to have concerts and we do need to have plays we need to have collective rituals and so on and you know we go to think of greek the greek city states and their and their theater and so on i mean uh, there are all kinds of wonderful possibilities um uh, uh, you know uh, i think religion probably does need um uh, there, there probably are ways in which we can sort of um, be in touch with the with the divine that are collective rather than just individual. Um, uh, the the, the um, and by divine, I simply mean sort of any system that is to us as as our neurons are, 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 are you know the the the, 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 the how can I put it the the the, the divine is to us as the, as the mind is to the neurons of the brain. I mean, I, yeah. uh, I don't rule out the possibility of there being a larger kind of integ integration of stuff um, uh, than, than, than uh, the highest thing we know, which is a human individual. Um, yeah. But, but um, 
Uh, one, of, one of the things I talk about yeah. a lot lately is that we're reducing the distance between the expert and the learners. Um, yes. And we, we're doing that digitally. And as a result of that, we're, we're, we're seeing this competition growing between certifications and college degrees. Um, yes. So for so many people, it's so much easier to just get a certification. In the tech world, uh, cares far less about uh, academic credentials yes. than than some of the other industries do, yes. and so they've been kind of uh, leading the charge, so to speak, in uh, this this movement towards more certifications. And and if if somebody has to shift gears later on in life, it's it's not this onerous thing of going back to for another two years or four years to uh, re-credential yourself. Uh, it might be a, a, yes. a month or month or two or three to. Yeah, to I, 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 I buy that, um, and that would, in a sense, as it were, leave to education. The, you know, the true function of of education, as opposed to training, right, um, right. which is the ability to um, uh, to synthesize, to uh, make. Uh, rational judgments that take into account the wisdom of the heart and uh, and and so on you know <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah um well it i'm absolutely fascinated by all the topics that you're tackling and the, the way your mind works and you think about things you're coming at every every issue from uh a hundred different angles and trying to understand it from every possible perspective, I, I think that's that's impressive because so few people have that ability to do that, um, and and so I think uh, uh, we're we're losing a lot by you you not being on center stage at the university anymore. <laughs> well, I, you know, I I put in my time. I taught for fifty three years. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only fifty three, huh? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, it, it, you know, you know, one can write books and so on, and I intend to write quite a few more before I hand in the dinner pail. Um, <laughs> uh, and it sounds, you know, I mean, you're obviously, you know, the same kind of be being. It seems to me, uh, and. The you know the the uh, the the futurati you know, are, uh, yeah. you know I, I feel they're my tribe you know yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, but I you know, I certainly do I certainly do feel that poly polymathy is kind of important because uh, and I you know I'm sure you, you know, this is a familiar thing uh, for you guys but that you know the most of the kind of big problems in any one discipline are probably beautifully solvable in some uh, neighbor neighbor discipline and sometimes not even a neighbor discipline. Yeah, well, we still haven't solved the problem of human aging yet. So I'm, I'm human, human aging. Human aging. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it is a problem, I mean, in in a way, uh, I, um, oh boy, this is this is dangerous stuff. But um, yeah, our aging creates urgency. I mean, we have to, yes. so many years to get things done. <laughs> yes, 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 and uh, so many things that one hopes one lives to see, um, right. uh, but. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I sort of like the, you know, the, the Hindu, uh, the Vedic kind of system of the stages of life. And I think that there is a kind of sannyasihood, which I have yeah. not yet achieved. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, I, um, uh, which would really be, you know, the, the um, contemplation of the bamboo leaves and the... Uh, uh, the 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 uh, let's say the full detachment of full de 
freedom from the attachment to the chattering um, anecdote that is one's surface conscious life. So, so okay. to speak. you okay. know, one, one hears one's own voice all the time going, and yes. and you know, for me, it uh, you know, it's it's not a bad voice, but sometimes I'm much happier when it is silent. You know, <laughs> well, it, it sounds like there would be a circle of life component to that because at, at eleven in Central Africa, you had this awakening to the beauty and magnificence and splendor yeah. of the world around you, and now. Yeah. 60 years later, you're, you're looking at wanting to get back to contemplating the bamboo leaves. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's an old Buddhist saying that, uh, you know, the child looks at the mountain and sees the mountain. The, the man looks at the mountain and sees 10,000 things. The sage looks at the mountain and sees the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, That's at the good. end of the 10 bulls, you know, you, you, you know, you start out sort of hewing wood and, drawing water and then you you go in pursuit of the mystical bull and uh, uh you know through tremendous sort of spiritual discipline you you manage to uh to catch up with the bull and but at the end you go back to hewing wood and drawing water but you know you're not just hewing wood and drawing water. You're hewing wood yeah. and drawing water. <laughs> <laughs> so speak, speaking of um, speaking of coming at things from different angles, you, you often choose to explore scientific subjects through an artistic lens. And I, yes. I wondered if you would speak a little bit about what is added by that approach. And just to flesh out some context for our audience, you've written several epic poems on the fallout of climate change, on the terraforming of Mars, on the future of America. And I'm just curious as to what is added to that by exploring it through an artistic medium. And I'm also curious as to why epic poetry is, is a good vehicle for that exploration as opposed to just a science fiction novel like Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, yeah I think so. No, I mean, I'm a huge devotee of science fiction and, you know, I, I have, I do have a science fiction novel. Uh, it, I mean, the the uh, my first science fiction novel, A Double Shadow. You know, what went did pretty well, um, but um, uh, the thing about poetry is that it has a kind of density and uh, elusiveness metaphoricity that makes it very, very much richer than regular prose, in my opinion. Um, and it's also been the... Uh, it, it's been the way in... Epic is the way in which human beings make grand narratives. I mean, one of my books is... Uh, uh, is uh, uh, yes, you know, epic form, content, and uh, and history, and I studied sixty or seventy epics from different parts of the world, and you know, found out in the process, of course, that any any coherent civilization that had something like the equivalent of a city um, is, uh, has either created an epic or is in the process of creating an epic. That is something that human beings do, like singing or drawing pictures of things or um, uh, or making po making poetry we, we, you know one of my discoveries i suppose with a german neuroscientist was the universality of poetic meter that uh, that the all human beings compose poetry all all human societies compose poetry they all do it in lines as opposed to just uh, a continuous thread and the lines are always about three seconds long. And um, uh, this corresponds um, perfectly to the actual information present of, um, of you know, that is now a standard in cognitive neuroscience. Um, and so, and that the, re the repetition of that um, uh, most natural rhythm of, of information <clears throat> causes changes in brain state that make us more um, uh, able to uh, 
escape the denotative and get into the connotative to uh, to uh, to try to read not for the literal but for the metaphorical and uh, so uh, poetry is that richer medium and uh, <clears throat> now obviously there have been huge changes in media um, as we've in our human in our human history and each time there's a big change in media usually there's a kind of outburst of epic writing or epic composing uh, so we go from the oral epic of of uh, homer and pre-homer that has been so wonderfully studied by you know um, lord and parry and by other people and then there's the and then you have the written epic, you know, of say, you know, Virgil, Dante, uh, the Popol Vuh, uh, mm -hmm. the Mahabharata. And then you have the print epic with Paradise Lost and Torquato Tasso and the Heike and the Prelude, and and then of course the the science fiction epics, Foundation, the Foundation series, and Dune, and um, and film. And then you have film epic, you know, Lord of the Rings and. Um, 2001 Space Odyssey, Star Wars, and so on. The, the, so we've had a kind of evolution of epic, but epic is the way that we make grand narratives. Um, that is the kind of uh, super narratives that are so capacious that they can contain, uh, you know, dozens or, or hundreds of, li of little narratives and put them into context with each other so that any kind of any of the tribes that make up the city find themselves a place in that grand narrative. Um, now, I, I think the novel doesn't do that. The novel is always, I think, sort of trapped, however great it can be, is trapped within a particular social world. And after the characters have gone through all of their extraordinary and beautiful and terrible uh, activities, the, the way the waters of, of, of the society close over them. Um, uh, now, there are novels that are epic. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think War and Peace and uh, Moby Dick and so on, they rise above that characteristic of the novel, but that makes them into kind of monsters as far, in terms of novel, in terms of the novel. You know, as you know, what Joyce was trying to do with Finnegan's Wake, um, uh, it, they, uh, it, maybe the natural way for human beings to make a big story that uh, is able to within whose language all the different languages of a given society can make themselves mutually understood. I think that would be a way of, of saying it. Uh, uh, the epic is the way that we do that. And one of our, I think a lot of our modern pro problems with modernism and postmodernism and the death of God and so on have been you know, the loss of uh, such a great narrative. Now, I think science has given us the basis for a new grand narrative, a new evolutionary grand narrative for human beings. And it seems to me that, that we have the opportunity to... Um, uh, you know, to to have another go at it. Are, are you familiar with uh, Yuval Harari's work? Um, I've heard. Uh, oh, oh, he's on my list, but uh, no, I haven't. I, I mean, I haven't haven't explored it yet. But that that in fact, I wrote a note. That this is really strange. I wrote a note to myself about it today. Something serendipity. So please tell me. Tell me. In in his book yeah. Sapiens, he advances the thesis that part of what allows human societies to operate at super Dunbar numbers is our ability to spin these fictions that coordinate yeah. us. In, they give us a series of shelling points to, or, to coordinate around. They give us a shared yes. vision. And this is part of the yes. glue that kind of holds everyone together. And, and, and some of yes. your comments about epics and how natural they are and how every society that's risen to the level of a city yes. produces them because yes. it gives all the different social strata, the different cliques, the different clusters of humanity, yes. uh, a shared narrative space in which to find yes. themselves, in which yes. to identify with their fellow man, with their civilization, and mm. thereby to kind of advance all their interests in unison. It, it sort of reminded me of, of the 
line of evidence that he, that he adduces in favor of, of that thesis in that book. That's wonderful. That that's what I was trying to talk about in my book about epic. You know, uh, uh, that 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 that's. Uh, um, uh, I think th- th- that in a sense, you know, if there is a successor successor to modernism and postmodernism, I think it has to be, in a sense, the the recreation of of, of an epos that is not for a particular culture or society, but is now for the planetary. Uh, culture, the planetary society, and that has to be, you know, obviously a huge effort of, of, um, uh, of combination of, of, uh, of um, uh, a, a drama. It, 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 you know, it can't be, it can't be monologic. It has to be dialogic. It, it has to, it has to take into account many, many different kinds of voices and different kinds of inspirations. The, the Apollonian, the Dionysian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. it sounds like one of the major themes sort of running through your work is, is that long ago, science and, and the rise of mechanistic science in particular yeah. became so it's so thoroughly conquered epistemology in the way we think about things that it sort of drove this wedge between itself yeah. and the humanities. And that in the modern age, part of what we need to do is rediscover the epic form and yes. explore science through it as, in, as yeah. a way of sort of breathing a holy fire back into the, the mechanisms yes. of the universe. Is, is that, yes. is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully said too. <laughs> I've been working on it for like a minute uh, the, or two. The holy fire. <laughs> I, may, I may steal that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I would like, like to ask you one question about the, the process you go through when you're writing. Yes. I mean, do you I mean, have to dress in a white robe and pull out your Smith Corona typewriter <laughs> and set with um, uh, two hours early in the morning with the light coming through a certain window? Uh, the plum leaves. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I'm at the moment. I've gone back. To, I'm I'm reading uh, Anthony Trollope novels. So, oh wow! Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I've always loved Anthony Trollope, and I just decided to read so reread re- some of them. <laughs> And Trollope would get up at like five o'clock in the morning, and he would start right. He would start writing. He would write for I think exactly two hours, and then just stop wherever he was. You know. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, uh, no, I, I, it, it's for me. It, it depends entirely on the kind of genre that I'm working in. If I'm writing lyric poetry, if I'm writing short poems, then. You know, I basically just have to drop everything and and you know and, and either sketch it down and then try to turn it into good verse, or or do, if I've got enough time, you know, to 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 to, to chisel it out at the time, <laughs> and you know, I can do that on the back of an envelope, more you know, kind of metaphorically, or on a or on a cell phone. Um, okay. Um, when I'm working on a longer work. Uh, you know, it really, I really have to have a routine and I'm at my best in the morning. And um, so I will, you know, I'll work, uh, you know, more or less from breakfast time to noon. Um, and then I'm pr- pretty much uh, spent for anything kind of uh, okay. uh, particularly creative after that. Um, <laughs> uh, with... Um, with occasional essays, it's somewhere in between. I mean, sometimes that you know, if I, if I, I'm getting, you know, I get sort of commissions for various things, reviews yeah. and that sort of thing, um, and um, uh, I'll I usually do those when I've got, you know, when I'm at a loose end, you know, when okay. when uh, there isn't something that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, that I immediately have to do. Uh, uh, as a kind of avocation, as it were. Okay. Yeah, everybody's different in how they think about uh, the task that lies before them when it comes to pulling words out of their mind and uh, yes, yes. putting them on paper, so to speak. Um, well, this this has been an absolute joy talking to you here tonight. Well, me too. I mean, how, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to... Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll look at the the various uh, 
links and so on in the correspondence. And I'm going to I'm going to sort of uh, start uh, uh, kibitzing. I, I think. Yeah. Well, in in the futurist world, we're always uh, trying to stay ahead of the curve and. Uh, sometimes my head hurts when I uh, start thinking about things that are just coming down the pike, like non-fungible tokens NFTs, right now. Right. Yeah, NFTs. Yes. Um, and the first time I heard that, I said, okay, what the hell is that? And <laughs> and so... The whole I, blockchain thing, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah. It was amazing. Uh, yeah. That, uh, that's, that's fabulous. That's a, yeah. So... I, I love the the learning challenge involved in all of this. That's that's what I find fascinating. But uh, I I want to want to thank you for being our guest tonight. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, so if if somebody wants to get get in touch with you, uh, how would they do that? Well, I have a blog, uh, FrederickTurnerPoet.com, um, and. Uh, um, uh, e uh, that, yeah, I do have a uh, a, uh, a university um, uh, uh, email uh, address, uh, which is you know it's just um, uh, 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 f turner at utdallas.edu, and uh, that 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 will get me. Um, okay. All right, well, we're, well, we're good. All right. Well, well. Thank you for joining us tonight. And well, uh, thank you. Well, great questions. I, I, I feel, and uh, feel nice very to honored you. to be uh, be in your presence. So, <laughs> oh shucks. <laughs> All right. Well, well thank I'm, you. I, I'm. You know, I I feel I feel very much uh, the you know, the same way. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.